May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Tom Vazo was in the grocery store parking lot. He'd gone there to finish some last-minute Christmas meal shopping on Christmas Eve with his wife. And his phone rang. So he sent his wife inside and said, I'll catch up with you in a minute, because he had been expecting this call. Tom Vazo, at this point in his life, was the executive vice president at the Aramark Corporation, one of the largest service companies in the United States, in the world, frankly. And he was in charge of their uniform and linens division. And he knew that this call was coming because every year on Christmas Eve, the chairman of the Aramark Corporation would call all of the senior executives to wish them a happy holiday, but also to review the year that was, to talk about what they did well, what they needed to improve on for the upcoming year. So Tom knew this call was coming, and he answered the phone. And on this particular Christmas Eve in 2008, there was not much holiday cheer. They got down to business right away, because if you remember 2008, you will remember that we were in the middle of what is called the Great Recession. And a lot of the blue-collar kinds of jobs that rely on uniforms and linens and towels disappeared almost overnight. And so the demand for that service disappeared with it. And despite losing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, Tom and the team in the linens and uniforms division had done everything they could. They had cut all of the newest hires and laid them off. They had not hired any seasonal workers to make up for the busiest times of the year. They had eliminated redundancies in accounting and reporting and built new efficiencies. They had done everything right. And even though they lost hundreds of millions of dollars in income, they missed their profit target by only $10 million. Their division had been projected to make $150 million in profit that year, and instead they made $140 million in profit, okay, above the bottom line. But the chairman's reply that Christmas Eve was that this was not good enough. In fact, this was completely unacceptable to miss their projection by that much. His advice to Tom for the new year, save more, cut more, do it now. And this is what Tom writes about that call. I knew that to find that next $10 million, I would need to permanently lay off at least 150 more people. We had to cut the next tier of employees, people who had been with the organization for many years. Up until this point, our company had a culture of taking care of people who were good team players and who had shown loyalty and dedication to the corporation. And I also knew that at the end of the day, delivering this result at the cost of another $10 million in cuts 
wouldn't really make a difference in the market value of the corporation. It wouldn't make a difference in the lives of the company's owners. We still had big profits. It all came down to bragging rights and a sense of honor. To be able to keep your word about the profit line, were we really about to ruin more lives just so we could prove that we were the most disciplined, pro-investment business folks out there? That even in the middle of a great recession, we were not going to miss our numbers. So Tom Vazo, who is now the CEO of Homeboy Industries, one of the uh, largest gang intervention and rehabilitation social enterprise outreach ministries in the entire world, faced a difficult decision that Christmas Eve. He could keep his job that paid him extremely well, that granted him by any measure of by any measure in the world, a great deal of success, despite his misgivings, or he could find a new way forward. And at this time of year, when we look back over the year that was and think about the year that is to come, I think a lot of us are in a position where we evaluate our lives, take stock of where we are, and think about the choices that are in front of us. And this week, our lessons give us two very different situations of people who are themselves facing hard choices, important decisions. And I want to take just a few minutes to unpack the choices that the men in these stories faced. We'll start with Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah. He ruled in Jerusalem, and he was king for 16 years. And in today's story, he goes out into a field to meet the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah had been around the court in Jerusalem for a long time. He had been the prophet to Ahaz's grandfather, Uzziah. He had been, uh, he had been known, rather, in the time of Uzziah. His prophetic ministry really started with Ahaz's dad, Jotham. This was someone that Ahaz had probably known his entire life. He had seen him coming in and out of the palace to advise his father. And the prophet meets him in this field and tells him not to worry about the invasion that everyone knows is coming. And to make sure that the king knows that God is with them, he says, just ask for a sign. And Ahaz refuses. Now, this is a very strange decision. It is sometimes interpreted as an act of faith, but that is not what's happening at all here. Because you see, divination, that is, seeking God's plans and purposes through asking for and interpreting signs, was a part of Hebrew culture at this point. Ahaz had no doubt heard all of these stories growing up and knew about people like Gideon, who was a very good and wise judge, but an unlikely military leader who was asked to go out and face the Midianites in battle. And because he was scared and did not want to go, he asked for a sign. And if you remember this story, he laid out a fleece, a piece of wool, and said, in the morning, if the ground is dry, but the wool is wet, I will know that you're with us. And to this day, we have a saying that we carry with us 
from that story in the book of Judges to lay a fleece, to test things out, to ask for a sign. Ahaz knew that story. Ahaz knew the story of Moses, who had gone into Pharaoh's palace with sign after sign and broken Pharaoh's hard heart eventually. And the people were allowed to go into freedom. He knew the stories about the Ark of the Covenant, how when it went out into battle with the people of Israel, they were victorious, but when they left it at home, they lost. Crushing defeats. And no doubt, he knew about what is one of my favorite and most obscure references from the Hebrew Bible. He knew about Urim and Thummim. These are divining stones. They are literally precious, semi-precious rocks that priests would use like casting lots to decide what the will of God was. And they were so important in Hebrew culture that they were sewn into the priestly garments that the priests would wear. In Exodus 28, it says, they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So trying to interpret God's plan through signs is part of the fabric of the culture, metaphorically and quite literally, of the Hebrew people. And here is the great prophet of God, someone who has been around for generations, saying, just ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, I will not. Why? It's because Ahaz has already made up his mind. He doesn't want to consult with God because he has already made a deal with the enemy. He has chosen to live in safety, not the safety for his people that he's entrusted to care for, the safety of himself and of his reign and of his power. Because you see, the book of Kings tells us that Ahaz was a great politician, but not a particularly great leader. He had made alliances with many of the other nations by adopting their gods and their practices that were detestable to the Jewish people. In fact, the Hebrew is a little bit vague in 2 Kings, but there is a, a story about Ahaz passing his son through fire, which the tradition tells us that he had sacrificed one of his own children to appease a foreign god, which is one of the most disgusting, detestable things in Hebrew culture. That was the thing that differentiated the Hebrew people from many of their foreign neighbors. Not only that, he gave all of the gold and the precious metals from the temple to the Assyrians in exchange for a promise that they would not invade Jerusalem and destroy his kingdom. You see, Ahaz was selfish. Ahaz did what seemed right to him, what was politically convenient, and what kept him in power, whether it served the interests of his people or not. He wasn't worried about pleasing God. He was only worried about himself. And that was the choice that he made. But we hear a story about another guy by the name of Joseph, who also faces a moment of very big decision. He is engaged to be married, and in Jewish culture at this time, he really, for all intent and purposes, was married to Mary, because the process of betrothal and engagement and then the marriage itself lasted for weeks or perhaps months, 
And at the 11th hour, literally, they've gone through all of these stages, and it's about to, everything's about to come together. And at the 11th hour, he finds out that his wife-to-be is pregnant with a baby that is not his own. Joseph decides to do what he thinks is the most honorable thing, which is divorce her quietly and send her back to her family. He doesn't want to embarrass her or condemn her. He doesn't want the scene played out like it does in John 8, where a woman who is accused of adultery is dragged into the public square in front of Jesus, publicly condemned and about to be stoned to death for what she's done before Jesus intervenes. Joseph says, I don't want to do that. I'll do the best, most decent thing I can do. But this is not a final decision. Because Joseph's heart is open still to the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know this because in Matthew's version of this Christmas story, the Annunciation comes not to Mary, but to Joseph. In a dream, the angel says, Don't be afraid of this baby and what's about to happen, because what you don't know, what you don't understand, is that this baby is God's gift not only to you, but to all of humanity. And all you have to do is trust and believe. And Joseph does believe, and he upholds his commitment to Mary. They are married, and he treats the baby as his son and raises him and teaches him. This required faith and love and commitment. And we are so familiar with the Annunciation story to Mary in Luke's Gospel. We praise the bravery of her decision to say yes to God's plan, and I think that is wonderful. We don't see that same level of bravery, perhaps, in the Joseph story. But what we do see is Joseph showing us what Ahaz did not, what Ahaz could not, what Advent hope looks like, what trusting in God's plan, despite what our eyes tell us, means. Because here is the thing about all of these stories. In all of these circumstances, the Spirit is speaking. But it's up to the hearers to respond. Even when Ahaz completely refuses to hear God's message, he says, I don't want a sign. I don't want to hear from God. Isaiah tells him that the sign is going to be there anyway. It's a child. It's a hope. It's God with us. And this is the same message that is delivered to Joseph hundreds of years later in a moment of uncertainty. A child is coming. A new hope for humanity. God with us. You see, when it comes to the Spirit's call to all of us, that message of hope of new life, of new birth, of new possibility. We want to be in Joseph's position. We want the angel to show up in front of us and stand before us and say, this is what God is asking you to do. We feel like if we get that word, there won't be any confusion about what we're supposed to do. But for most of us, we don't have that experience Instead, the message comes from the counsel of a trusted old friend and advisor 
like it did for Ahaz. Or it comes in that uncomfortable feeling in our gut after a very unpleasant phone call on a cold winter day when you hang up the phone in disbelief and say, there's got to be something better than this. The truth is that the Spirit is always speaking to us. We just need the sensitivity and awareness to hear the Spirit's voice. So if you're struggling to hear the Spirit's voice today, or maybe you're wondering if God is still speaking to you at all, I want to leave you with something to consider. The best place to start to train your ear to listen to the Spirit's call is with love. As our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, likes to say, if it's not love, it's not God. Ahaz was not motivated by love. He was motivated by his own selfish interests, and he closed himself off from hearing the message of God. Everything is going to be okay, and your people are going to be safe. That was not the message he wanted to hear. But Joseph had already resolved before the Spirit, before he heard the Spirit's message from the angel, he had already resolved to walk in love and to be kind and to do the best thing he could do for Mary. And it was from that place of love that he was open to hear the Spirit's message. So as we continue to incline ourselves to God's way of love, Ignatian spirituality tells us that our hearts will be increasingly softened, like a sponge, and that when we hear the Word of God come to us, it will be like water falling on that sponge, gently soaking in and filling us up with hope, with love, with expectation. The message of Advent. So on this last Sunday of Advent, as we think about the messages we've heard over the last four weeks, messages of hope, of peace prevailing over violence, of a new way to be in this world, as we close out this year and as we look forward to a new one. We pray for the openness to continue to walk in love and to listen to the Spirit's call to all of us. Amen.